My soul is anguished. So says Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, as he sits with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here in this moment, he foresees all that is about to happen. Here in this moment, he foresees the torture he will soon undergo. Here in this moment, he foresees the abandonment he will soon experience. And so here in this moment, he is anxious. Here in this moment, he is grieved. Here in this moment, he is afraid. And here now is why I open today's sermon by pointing this out. I point this out because we will soon be turning our attention to Matthew chapter 6 and to Jesus' famous words to his disciples about being anxious for nothing. And so I think it is therefore important that before we consider this message from Matthew 6, we first safeguard against our tendency to oversimplify it. In other words, I open this sermon about Matthew 6 by first talking about Matthew 26, because once we do turn to Matthew chapter 6, I want us to be able to remember that while Jesus does tell us not to be afraid, that even Jesus himself was afraid sometimes. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm not ready to talk about Matthew chapter 6 yet. So instead, let's shift gears and let's go from Matthew's Gospel to the Mayflower Hotel. Let's go from the year 33 CE to the year 1933, and let's go to the bedside of an anxious Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president-elect who the following morning will be sworn in as the 32nd president of the United States. And one thing we see that is obvious when we do, this man is deeply afraid in this moment. Beyond the fear that no doubt attends the responsibility of this high office, and beyond the fear that no doubt attends speaking before an entire nation, beyond all of this, Roosevelt had much deeper reasons to be afraid that night. For he was being called to this office at a deeply volatile moment. The Great Depression was currently ravaging the country. Other nations across the world were currently being pulled into left-wing communism or right-wing fascism. And meanwhile, those same excitements were stirring the masses in Roosevelt's own country as well. In fact, just a few days before this night at the Mayflower, one of Roosevelt's friends had said to him, you know, Franklin, if you succeed, you might well go down as one of the greatest presidents in American history. But if you fail, you'll likely go down as one of the worst. To which Roosevelt solemnly responded, if I fail, I will go down as the last. Such was the existential anguish that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was feeling that night in the Mayflower Hotel. Tomorrow, he would take over the responsibility for a deeply divided, increasingly hostile, problem-plagued nation. And what's more, he was viewed with deep suspicion and, in fact, abject hatred by people to both the left and the right of him. On top of that, he, of course, had no crystal ball and thus had no way of knowing whether he was up to the task 
of charting a course forward. And so it was that that night, lying in his bed, his soul anguished, he found himself reading a book recently given to him by one of his wife Eleanor's best friends. It was a volume of writings by Henry David Thoreau. And as Roosevelt settled into the book, he soon came across this line, quote, Nothing is so much to be feared as fear. Underlining this passage, feeling as if Thoreau had just put his finger on Roosevelt's own source of anguish, Roosevelt now put the book down, pulled out the speech that he prepared for tomorrow, and adding his own rhetorical flourish to it, put Thoreau's idea at the heart of his inaugural address. And so it was that he stood before a problem-plagued country the following day and said, the only thing we have left to fear is fear itself. Leading me now to a word on fear. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard spent a great deal of time thinking about fear, about what fear is and why we experience it. And what Kierkegaard concluded was this, that because we as human beings, alone of all sentient beings, can conceive of past, present, and future, that is, because we have the capability of objectifying time, that we therefore necessarily experience fear. We imagine the future with all of its possibilities, yet we know we can't control it. Just as we know, we also cannot suspend our ability to imagine it. And that, Kierkegaard said, makes fear inevitable, intrinsic to the human condition. And so, given this reality, Kierkegaard said, rather than try to eliminate fear from our lives, which is impossible, that we should instead learn, he taught, to fear in the right way. And here's what he meant by that. He meant that we must increasingly learn how to name that which we are afraid of. That we must learn how to differentiate between being afraid and fearing something. And here's why this is so important, he said. Because to cease being afraid in general and about everything and anything that could happen, to cease being afraid in general frees us to then fear specific, identifiable things. And when we can do that, he taught, we can then begin to discern between those fears over which we do have some control and those fears over which we don't. And once we've done that, he taught, we can actually begin to do something about our fears rather than just sit in dread of them or rail out against them. Do you follow all of that? Okay, well, we'll come back to it in a moment. End of philosophy lesson for now. Don't all be too excited. 
Let's shift gears again now and let's turn back to our gospel lesson today. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is standing before his disciples and is preaching the sermon that we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount. And he's been preaching for quite some time at this point, clearly oblivious to the fact that many of these people have reservations to make at Cracker Barrel. And he's been harping for quite some time now on humility and kindness and gentleness and service and on goodness and mercy and charitableness and love. And he has been imploring these new disciples of his to forgive those who may not necessarily deserve forgiveness and to love even their enemies and to be the light of the world and even to become peacemakers. And these have all been lovely words and have no doubt made for quite the rousing sermon. But you see, here's the thing. These haven't just been words to these disciples who've been listening to them. Because you see, these disciples live in a world that at this very moment is desperately in need of peace. And desperately in need of love and compassion and humility and light. For right at this very moment, as Jesus is talking, wars are taking place all around them. And seemingly with each new day, the Roman Empire is conquering some new nation-state. Meanwhile, the central authorities of their own nation are cozying up to the leaders of the Roman government and are lining their own pockets through a corrupt temple tax system. More and more people just like them they themselves are going without their daily bread. Work is becoming increasingly scarce. And because it is, unscrupulous business folk are exploiting the situation. Factions are forming all throughout their land, and there seems to be no sign of this abating. That is the world these disciples are living in right now. And so for them to sit here on this mountain and listen to Jesus preach these words about humility and gentleness and meekness and mercy, and to hear Him talk to them about the importance of forgiveness and about the need for them to be peacemakers, for these people, these are not just words they are hearing. This is a deeply uncomfortable challenge. And as such, these words do not strike their ears like smooth poetry, the way the Sermon on the Mount tends to do for our own ears 2,000 years later. Instead, as these words are uttered, they seize the souls of these disciples with sure terror. Because you see, it's one thing to want someone to bring about peace for us. But it's an entirely other thing to believe we are somehow responsible for bringing it about ourselves. Right? And so it is that Jesus, sensing his disciples' discomfort with the words he has been telling them, now shifts the tenor of his sermon and begins to conclude this challenge by saying to them, so do not worry about your life. Strive first for God's kingdom 
And do not worry about tomorrow, for today's trouble is enough trouble for today. Leading us back now to Matthew chapter 26, which takes place some three years later, and to Jesus' anguished cry in the garden of Gethsemane. What we might rightly wonder has happened to do not worry. What has happened to be not afraid? What has happened to consider the lilies of the field? Was that all just talk? I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane is literally known for the preponderance of lilies that grow there. So if we are really not to be afraid somehow as human beings, if we are really supposed to somehow shun all feelings of fear through exercising sheer willpower, if that's the case, then why in this moment is Jesus, God incarnate himself, why in this moment is he so afraid? Why in this moment is he not considering the lilies of the field? I truly hope you will not feel me irreverent for putting it this way. Because, friends, you see, this is a terribly important question. Because to really appreciate Jesus' lesson to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, we have to first reckon with the full humanity that Christ took on in the person of Jesus. To approach Matthew chapter 6, we must first recognize Jesus was not a superhero. While true God from true God, while the second member of the Godhead become incarnate, nonetheless, Jesus was, as the epistle to the Hebrews makes clear, subject to our own weaknesses, tempted and tried in every way as we. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He got angry. He got excited, he got sad, he got anxious, he got afraid. And the reason this matters, other than the simple fact that if he hadn't, we would have no way at all of being able to relate to our Savior. Other than that, the reason this matters is this. Realizing this about Jesus helps us read Matthew chapter 6 in a far more substantive and far more helpful light than we otherwise tend to do. For otherwise, Matthew chapter 6 is a passage that if we forget Jesus' humanity, and if we forget his disciples' humanity, and if we forget the context into which he is speaking, if so, we can forget our own humanity unwittingly too. It can cause us to forget that even despite deep faith, people all over the world go without food and water every day. It can cause us to forget that even despite deep faith, people all over the world go without clothing and shelter every day. It can cause us to forget that even despite deep faith, all these things are not always added unto us. And it can cause us to forget that no matter how deep our faith is, no matter how sincere, we will never be able to escape the reality of fear. 
because we are human. Leading me back now to Franklin D. Roosevelt and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. It would have been the height of absurdity that night for Roosevelt to have considered the enormous responsibility before him and thought, you know what? There's nothing to really be afraid of. I'm just not going to worry about it. Just as it would have been the height of absurdity for those gathered at Jesus' feet that day to have heard the challenge he was calling them to, to have heard the challenge of being peacemakers in their deeply broken world and thought, you know what? Sure, there's nothing really to be afraid of. Just won't worry about it. Of course there was something to be afraid of. There was everything to be afraid of. Because there is always everything to be afraid of. The future by its very definition remains undetermined and therefore any number of things could happen. And as human beings endowed with the gifts we've been given by our Creator, we have no choice but to know this. Meanwhile, we have no choice to be able to suspend this. And so the question Jesus would have his disciples then ask is, not how do we cease ever being afraid, but how do we channel our fear in the right way? Not how do we turn off our fear, but what right this moment should we be rightly afraid of? What are general fears surrounding an uncontrollable tomorrow? And what are practical fears that we ourselves can address today? What is an abstract fear we feel about what could be coming? And what is an identifiable fear we can do something about now? What is just the fear of fear? And what are practical fears we can face head on today? Leading us back now to the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, Jesus faces a practical fear head on. And he is afraid. The text makes that very clear. My soul is anguished, he cries out. Here in this garden, the hour nigh, Jesus now considers his coming betrayal and the crucifixion that no doubt awaits, and he is afraid. Think not, never think that Jesus, three years earlier when he preached that sermon on that mountain, think not that Jesus did not foresee then what would be coming for him now. Of course he did. But he also knew that unless he were to disavow his very mission and just give up on the kingdom of God entirely, he also knew that otherwise this future agony was something he could do nothing about now. And so instead of focus all of his energy on the worries of tomorrow and be therefore stymied in his efforts to bring God's kingdom closer today, he chose instead to focus his fears on the present troubles before him. Every day he chose to focus his fears on the present troubles before him. Today's trouble is enough for today. 
he preached to his disciples. And we can have no doubt that he preached it more than just this one time. So do not worry about tomorrow's problems, he taught, for tomorrow will certainly bring problems of its own. Friends, unless we also recall the suffering and anguish Jesus himself underwent as he walked this earth as we do, we can forget that turning off our fear is impossible. Unless we recall Jesus' own humanity, we can take Matthew chapter 6 to be merely a feel-good lesson telling us that eh, we don't really have anything to worry about. And while there is no doubt much comfort to be taken from Matthew chapter 6, comfort is not ultimately what this famous passage is about, for it sits right in the middle of a much longer sermon, a sermon where Jesus is challenging them and calling them to something deeply terrifying. And so it's important that we therefore understand Jesus didn't expect his disciples to be unafraid always. He simply expected them not to let their fear of fear prevent them from doing the work he was presently calling them to. The work of mending a broken world. The work of being peacemakers. The work of being his disciples. To take up their crosses and follow him he needed them to understand would necessarily bring with it fear and anguish and discomfort and distress. And as he spoke about this call, he saw that discomfort and distress on their faces as he gave them the challenge. And so it was that he counseled them to begin trying to manage their fear, to put off tomorrow's worry until tomorrow to focus on simply facing head-on the troubles of today. To learn to separate the general fear of persecution and reject and hatred. To separate that from the practical fear of making peace here, now, in the present moment, in whatever ways they could. And so would that be the lesson that we take from Matthew chapter 6 today? For just like those disciples, we too have a world of things to be afraid of. Not only do we each have an infinite number of things to worry about in our own personal lives, but we too, like those first disciples, live in a time when the climate that surrounds us is deeply charged. Like in the disciples' day, so too in ours, division plagues the world around us, and hostility seems to heighten with each passing day. Factions form and foment hatred and anger. And what's more, it seems there's no one who knows what to do about it. And thus, like those earliest disciples, we too live in a world in desperate need of peacemakers. Just like those earliest disciples, if we are to answer the call of Christ, then we too have been called to love our enemies and to forgive those who have wronged us 
and to be kind to those we disagree with and to be considerate of those who are different from us. And just like those disciples, if we take this call seriously, it can be a frightening thing for us too. Because as we've said earlier, people love peacemakers until they actually start trying to make peace. And so I conclude this very long sermon by simply saying this. Fear is not, unfortunately, something we can simply turn on and off like a faucet. Nor did Jesus ever teach us that it is. Instead, fear is something that sits at the very heart of humanity. It's the thing that alerts us to potential danger. And thus it need not be lamented, for it is often time necessary. For fear is often the thing that points us to the areas in deepest need of Christ's love. So let us as disciples fear not fear. Let us instead learn to distinguish the fear of fear from the fear of action. For like those first disciples, so too can we turn the world upside down through following the peaceful way of Christ. And even like Christ himself, so too can we channel our own anguish into something deeply redemptive for the world. We need only commit ourselves to following his way and following it from certain fear to glorious resurrection. We need only remember that today always has problems enough for today. And that through the hope of resurrection, the only thing we as Christ's followers ever have to fear is fear itself. Amen.